Hey, everybody. Welcome to the fourth episode of Crafting with Ursula with none other than Karen Joy Fowler. I wasn't sure what to call this episode, and for a long time was going to call it Fellow Feeling and the Non-Human Other. Ultimately, however, I settled upon a broader and more unusual title, Experimental Women, Animals, Science, and Story, because after Karen and I were done talking, we both commented on how the frame through which we talked, the lens through which we explore Le Guin's work, one that arose from a particular deeply shared interest in this regard within both Ursula and Karen's work, was a frame or lens or approach into Le Guin's world that we hadn't necessarily seen before or certainly not often. Both writers are deeply interested in science, and yet both raise questions about how science is conducted and to what ends, how science perceives itself, and what the way we construct experiments says about how we view ourselves as a species with regards to other living things, with regards to our views on everything from intelligence, the body versus the mind, emotions and subjectivity, gender, and so much more. Ultimately, these questions of how we experiment become also ways both of these writers experiment with story and within story. And we see the ways certain things get erased, both in science and within story, that both of these authors try to revive and reclaim. I think because of this, because of this way Le Guin defends science through reimagining it, that we see her writing cited by scholars and scientists themselves. Donna Haraway naming Le Guin as crucial to her rethinking narrative within evolutionary theory. Or when you open up Annette Singh's award-winning work of cultural anthropology, the mushroom at the end of the world, one of the first things you encounter is an epigraph by Le Guin. As you'll discover as these two hours unfold, leaning into these questions about science, ultimately these questions become about many other things, from the status of women to the biases within the ways we tell stories to the importance of building a feminist archive to what exactly it would mean to admit other creatures beyond the human as kin. It is a perfect complement to the last episode with Isaac Yuen, both of them deeply ecological, both deeply looking at the role of the non-human within our stories, and yet very different conversations all the same. Before we begin, I'll mention that if you're enjoying this series, you can find many other science fiction and fantasy and ecologically themed conversations within the podcast archive of Between the Covers, the multiple conversations with Ursula herself, but also ones with Jeff Vandermeer, Richard Powers, N.K. Jemison, Ted Chang, Kelly Link, and many others. If you go to tinhouse.com slash podcasts, you can sort the archive by genre, including by science fiction and fantasy. 
And also, consider joining the Between the Covers and Crafting with Ursula community as a listener supporter. There are many Ursula-specific potential rewards, from out-of-print, rare collectible chapbooks by Le Guin, to Ursula K. Le Guin Conversations on Writing, to the new anthology of fiction written in tribute to her called Dispatches from Anaris, which includes work from past guest Molly Gloss, from Lydia Yuknovich, from Fonda Lee, Lainey Zumas, and many others, and with a foreword written by me. But there are a ton of other things too, so consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter and head over to patreon.com slash between the covers to explore the various reasons you might. And now for today's Crafting with Ursula with Karen Joy Fowler. The connection between what I do as a writer, make, making worlds out of words, and what my wizards do, using words to kind of remake the world and change the world and cast spells, and that magic in Earthsea is word magic. I mean, obviously, to me, words do make magic in a sense. They make something new or different. What I'm after, ultimately, is to make something beautiful. Just like a potter making a pot, or a sculptor carving a statue. Art has to do with making something that is satisfying and beautiful. I see my job as as holding doors open, or opening windows, but who comes in and out the doors? What you see out the window? How do I know? My responsibility is just to keep the mind open, not close it off. That's enough right there. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Crafting with Ursula. Today's guest is the award-winning writer of seven novels and three short story collections, Karen Joy Fowler. Fowler holds undergraduate and graduate degrees from the University of California, Berkeley in South Asian Studies, and she's probably best known for her novel, The Jane Austen Book Club, which spent 13 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, was a New York Times notable book, and ultimately adapted to the big screen as a major motion picture. Fowler was also a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award for her novel, Sister Noon, and her last novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, was shortlisted for the 2014 Man Booker Prize and won the 2014 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. Her first novel since then, one of the most anticipated books of 2022, Booth, about the family of John Wilkes Booth, is receiving widespread critical acclaim upon its release. Fowler is equally well-known and esteemed in the world of fantasy and science fiction. Her first two novels, Sarah Canary and The Sweetheart Season, mix elements of historical fiction and the fantastical. Her short story collection, Black Glass, won the 1999 World Fantasy Award. And her story collection, What I Didn't See, won the 2011 World Fantasy Award. Her stories have won multiple Nebula Awards for Best Short Story and the Shirley Jackson Award. 
And in 2020, she received the World Fantasy Life Achievement Award for her body of work to date, joining the likes of Ray Bradbury, Italo Calvino, Terry Pratchett, and Ursula K. Le Guin. Karen Joy Fowler is also the co-founder of the James Tiptree Jr. Award, now known as the Otherwise Award, a literary prize for science fiction or fantasy that expands or explores our understanding of gender. Originally named for the science fiction writer, Alice Sheldon, who wrote under James Tiptree Jr. as her pen name. Fowler has co-edited multiple editions of the James Tiptree Jr. Award Anthology, wrote the introductions to Le Guin's essay collection, No Time to Spare, and her story collection, Changing Planes, as well as co-editing 80 Memories and Reflections on Ursula K. Le Guin, a leather-bound book from Aqueduct Press that was presented to Le Guin on her 80th birthday with writings and collections from Vonda McIntyre, Molly Gloss, Kim Stanley Robinson, Joe Walton, and many others. Fowler has been guest of honor at ReaderCon, the annual science fiction convention, joining past guests of honor Gene Wolfe, Octavia Butler, Samuel Delaney, China Mieville, and Nalo Hopkinson. She has taught at the Clarion Workshop, science fiction and fantasy's premier writing workshop, and is the current president of the Clarion Foundation. We are lucky to have her here today. Welcome to Crafting with Ursula, Karen Joy Fowler. Thank you very much, David. That was that put me in some heady company. I haven't really <laughs> stopped to think about. Yeah, and deservedly so. But well, before we talk about the topic and the text that we 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 conjured and gathered together to talk about today, tell us and orient us to Ursula's work and how it's intersected with your life, your first encounter with it, and also Ursula the person behind the work, how her life intersected with yours. I started reading, Ursula, I started reading science fiction uh, when I was in college. And um, so I, I, I do feel that there are people who started much earlier are imprinted with the genre in a way that I'm, that I'm not, but I do love it. And, uh, and Ursula was one of the very first science fiction writers that I read. Um, a man... I later married, recommended her to me, and uh, I have always felt that uh, that perhaps if his literary taste had not been so very good, I might not <laughs> marry him. Um, the first book of hers that I read was um, The Left Hand of Darkness, and I share with so many people just the mind-blowing experience that that book produced, uh, the enormously different ways it made me think about many things um and then having having loved that i went on to read rocannon's world and um the lathe of heaven and uh, the other works that um that were available uh, i met ursula after uh, my first novel was published i was living in davis california and she came as a guest of the English department uh, and there was a luncheon for her. And I got a phone call from the woman who was putting the luncheon together saying that Ursula had asked that I be included. Um, I think my literary career has brought me many high points and many moments of where I felt uh, 
enormously lucky and proud of what I have achieved, but I don't think we can ever really top that one mm. to get a phone call saying Ursula Le Guin would like to meet you. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine actually. No, I can't even, I can't imagine. And it <laughs> happened. To me. So, um, yeah, so I, I met her at that lunch and then sort of as, as luck would have it, the English department really kind of dropped the ball on getting her where she was supposed to be and making sure that her schedule matched up with the one that she had actually been given. And so I ended up sort of shepherding her around that weekend. And, um, uh, and, and that was the beginning of my friendship with her. Yeah. Well, I'd love to start with your novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. When I think of Ursula's notion of fellow feeling, of treating other non-humans as kin, and the title of this book, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, which I think can be interpreted and read several ways, but one of the ways I think could be as a notion of fellow feeling, that we are the things beside ourselves. Uh, We are also the creatures that walk beside us, um, which in the case of this book would be the primate sibling of the narrator. Um, I'd love to start with the Kellogg experiment in its own right, and then also as an inspiration for this novel. If you could just talk to us about the Kellogg experiment, which is a real experiment, and then how that became sort of the basis for this novel, I think it would be a great place to uh, begin an exploration of the works that we've put side by side of yours and, and Ursula's. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, the Kellogg experiment was, in fact, uh, the impetus for the novel. I uh, I was talking, my, my father was a psychologist, so um, this experiment is something that I had heard about most of my life, and, and the, the fact that other people had not heard about it most of their life was not entirely clear to me until I began to talk to my daughter about it. I can't remember what prompted the conversation, but I found myself describing the experiment to her. Um, And the experiment, which took place in the 1930s, was uh, an experiment designed to see what the capabilities of uh, chimpanzees might be if they were raised in an absolutely human environment, if they were raised like children. And in order to accomplish this, um, uh, Dr. Kellogg brought a chimpanzee into his family and raised it simultaneously uh, to his own son. So um, as much as seems reasonable, uh, you know, they they weren't completely insane about it, but um, the Kellogg's tried to create a sort of similar environment for the infant chimpanzee and the infant child. And um, what I also read is that the experiment, which did not last all that long, came to an abrupt stop because the Kellogg child began to imitate chimp behaviors just as readily as the chimp began to imitate human behaviors. My daughter was just enormously shocked by the description of this experiment, um, which again, uh, because I'd heard about it my whole life, I hadn't really stepped back to think about how peculiar um, and, and in some ways disturbing it actually was. But, um, but she said, you know, what would it 
be like to be the child in that experiment. That should be your next foot, mom. Yeah. T- tell us also about your father, who in a sense is a muse for um, a good deal of your work. Um, tell us about the lifelong argument that you had, or, or if not argument, debate that you had um, about how humans should position themselves in relation to the non-human. Him being a, um, he did experiments on on rats, I believe, as part of his psychological studies. Um, yes, he was a psychologist, um, and he um, considered himself, you know, a, a rigorous scientist. He did not, he did not work with people. Um, he he studied learning behaviors, and he studied them in rats. So you know, a lot of what he did was to run rats through mazes and then um, create mathematical models uh, on the data that he got. I mean, I've, I've thought so much about so many of these topics, especially um, in writing the book and in talking about the book afterwards. And one of the things that really strikes me now is that um, as children, we are really encouraged to feel the fellow feeling with other creatures that we are then apparently expected to put aside as we grow up. So that even, you know, the books that we read half the time, the characters in them are, are animals, although they're dressed as humans and they're being kissed goodnight by their parents and helped through their sibling rivalries and, uh, you know, in every way stand-ins for, for us. So my father, um, just he was just a very careful um, thinker, uh, particularly in, in his own field. And, and what seemed obvious to me, which was that animals had emotions and that they thought that they could make plans. Uh, and I was, my data set was mainly the pets inside our house, of which there were several and several kinds. Um, and he, he felt that was, a, a, I was making a leap. I was making a leap I had no foundation for. And so the argument you were referring to, and I think argument is a fair term, um, was whether animals could think or not. And I would say he did not say they could not think. He said, I had no way of knowing that they could. I felt that I saw it with my own eyes that, you know, that to deny it was to deny my own experience with animals. Well, you, you had chosen a brief passage to read from Ursula's latest, uh, or last essay collection, um, about her encounter with a rattlesnake. And I guess in thinking about what you're going to read, I just want to return briefly in sort of underscore something that I think we're going to unpack a lot more, but this idea that the Kellogg's were going to bring a chimp into their home as a semi-controlled experiment to raise along their infant child and stopped the experiment prematurely because of the horror that their own child could be influenced by their primate sibling. So there's definitely something baked into that sort of um, science experiment that's not being examined, this presumption that we're only studying the chimp and that um, 
how terrible it would be for the studied to influence the studier. So um, I would love to hear what you've, what you've chosen. So I'm going to read two bits from an essay called First Contact that appears in No Time to Spare uh, and involves an encounter Ursula had with a rattlesnake. Uh, it starts with a date, May 2011. I have seen many rattlesnakes. I have eaten fried rattlesnake, but only once have I ever been in contact with a living rattler. Though contact is not the word I really want, it is metaphorical and inexact. We did not touch. Maybe it was communication, though of a very limited kind, as communication between alien species is often doomed to be. We were at the old ranch in Napa Valley, and I was just about to sit down on one of the 1932 Iron Chase lounges, carefully, because if you sit too far forward, the whole unwieldy thing stands up and throws you off like a bronco. When I heard a noise, I recognized. That was the first communication. It was the hissing buzz of the rattlesnake's rattles. I'm gonna skip a little bit here. Um, well, she's calling Charles to come and see the snake. And she says, we thought we had to kill the rattlesnake. That's what you do generally in the country at a place where little kids come and run around. And then it turns out that they are both unable to do that. And Charles went up the driveway and down the road a couple hundred yards to our only near neighbors, the Cassettes. It took a while. All that while, the snake and I did not move and looked steadily into each other's eyes. They say a snake's gaze is hypnotic, but who was hypnotizing whom? We were like people newly in love who can't take their eyes off each other. This was not love, but it was something equally intense and even more immediately a matter of life and death. It is this brief time, five or six minutes, I suppose, 10 minutes at most, that over the years I have thought of again and again, always with the vividness of the moment and always with a sense of its importance or import of there being a great deal to learn from it. During this time, the rattlesnake and I were alone together, alone in all the world. We were held together by common fear, bonded. We were held in a spell, entranced. This time was outside ordinary time and outside ordinary feelings. It involved danger for both of us and it involved a bond between creatures who do not and cannot ordinarily relate to each other in any way. Each would naturally try not to relate, to just get away or to kill in self-defense. In all these respects, I think it isn't amiss to think of this time as sacred. So I'm gonna play the first half of a seven minute speech Ursula gave at a conference at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, the conference was called Anthropocene Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet. And the speech was called Deep in Admiration. Um, I just feel like some of the things she's, she introduces, many of the things she introduces in the first half of the speech can sort of serve as something both to echo forward and something to refer back to as we talk. Um, and this this is her reading it, not at the conference, but this is when she read it 
um, during the conversation I had with her about poetry, the second half of the speech, the part we're not going to hear, is about the relationship between poetry and science. And it also the speech itself becomes the preface to her poetry collection late in the day. So here's the first half of the speech, Deep in Admiration. Okay, the, the little talk I gave is called Deep in Admiration. I heard the poet Bill Siverly this week say that the essence of modern high technology is to consider the world as disposable, use it and throw it away. The people at this conference are here to think about how to get outside the mindset that sees the techno-fix as the answer to all problems. It's easy to say we don't need more high technologies inescapably dependent on despoliation of the earth. It's easy to say we need recyclable, sustainable technologies, old and new, pottery making, brick laying, sewing, weaving, carpentry, plumbing, solar power, farming, IT devices, whatever. But here in the midst of our orgy of being lords of creation, texting as we drive, it's hard to put down the smartphone and stop looking for the next techno fix. Changing our minds is going to be a big change. To use the world well, to be able to stop wasting it and our time in it, we need to relearn our being in it. Skill in living, awareness of belonging to the world, delight in being part of the world, always tends to involve knowing our kinship as animals with animals. Darwin first gave that knowledge a scientific basis. And now both poets and scientists are extending the rational aspect of our sense of relationship to creatures without nervous systems and to non-living beings. Our fellowship as creatures with other creatures, things with other things, Relationship among all things appears to be complex and reciprocal, always at least two-way back and forth. It seems that nothing is single in this universe, and nothing goes one way. In this view, we humans appear as particularly lively, intense, aware nodes of relation in an infinite network of connections, simple or complicated, direct or hidden, strong or delicate, temporary or very long-lasting, a web of connections, infinite but locally fragile, with and among everything, all beings, including what we generally class as things, objects. Descartes and the behaviorists willfully saw dogs as machines without feeling, is seeing plants as without feeling a similar arrogance? One way to stop seeing trees or rivers or hills only as natural resources is to class them as fellow beings, kinfolk. I guess I'm trying to subjectify the universe because look where objectifying it has gotten us. To subjectify is not necessarily to co-opt or colonize or exploit. 
Rather, it may involve a great reach outward of the mind and imagination. So, with all of that in mind, <laughs> which is a lot, um, I wanted to slowly move toward two of the stories we picked, the Le Guin story, Mazes, and your story, Us, uh, which both have to do with science and experimentation in a controlled setting. Um, but sort of as we move toward discussing them, I know when you were writing your novel, um, you read most of the prominent books by primatologists. I think you also took a class on animal cognition. Um, That's right. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I, I think is baked into a lot of scientific experiments, not as a subject to be studied, but as part of the mechanism of how study happens is a sense or even a defense of a vertical hierarchy of species. Um, something that I think both you and Le Guin are actively troubling. When, when Le Guin says in what we just heard, relationship among all things appears to be complex and reciprocal, always at least two-way back and forth, I think of the Kellogg experiment and, and the mother who, who stops it because the experiment is supposed to be unidirectional in their mind, not reciprocal. Um, how dare a child get imprinted by an animal be changed by having that animal as a fellow animal sibling? And if I remember correctly from some of your interviews, you said similarly that experiments tell us much more about us than they do about the things we're studying. Uh, and that's something that I feel like is echoed in a lot of research about research. Um, and I was, but I was hoping you could maybe unpack a little bit of that for us. What you mean when you say um, we learn more about ourselves than what we're studying in these uh, very, controlled and artificial environments where we're studying? I would say uh, that in both Ursula's story, Mazes, and in my story, Us, which I think do bear a lot of, uh, have a lot of similarities, that um, one of the points being made uh, or being discussed is that is that lack of reciprocity, that it is... Uh, that, that the experimenter has designed the experiment not as a way of communicating with um, the subject of the experiment, not as a collaborative process, and that any actually any collaboration on the part of the subject is seen as damaging the experiment in some way, and it is something to be avoided and um, something to be stopped as as the Kellogg's did and that therefore um, the the way the experiment is designed is entirely a product of the experimenter and and the experiment itself is a a representation of the experimenter um, and and therefore um, as I, as I said uh, you know shows us the limits of the experimenter's imagination um, shows us the way the experimenter believes data will work in the experiment, shows us what the experimenter thinks is important to find, um, uh, 
shows us how far the experimenter is willing to go. All of those things um, seem to me, uh, as you said, baked into the in, into the process it's, itself. Um, as as Ursula's little comment about how objectifying the world has um, gotten us someplace we probably wish we had not gotten to that. Um, that this model has uh, has had some um, some impacts that uh, are are quite dreadful to think about. What's also sort of ironic to think that objective would you would have the sense that it would have no um, bias that it's that there's nothing centered, but even like the notion that you're going to study chimp language by having them try to talk to humans versus observing them talking to each other because observing them talk to each other both would seem to be more scientifically meaningful, but also would maybe against what we want as humans would decenter us from the situation. I I wonder if it's connected to when she's talking in the speech about the techno fix that we, we want to be the solution to our own, the, the problems that we've created like so, what's so appealing about a techno fix, even if it's the next extractive, high technological solution to the last extractive high technological s- problem that we've caused, is that we would be the center of the story. I mean, I think about like Greta Thunberg saying, "Well, we already have the technology. It's called a tree." Um, like if we had, if we let these other creatures live on their own terms more if the world wasn't so humanized that seems to be a more sophisticated techno techno fix for lack of a better word than the than the human techno fix yeah i i entirely agree with that and i have been struck by um how difficult it is to reproduce the things that our fellow creatures come to quite naturally. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, it's interesting that mazes are used to measure problem solving skills in quote unquote higher animals. Um, And if these were truly meant as experiments, which I know they are, but if they were truly only meant as experiments, not to reinforce the ways we are different, that we differ from other creatures, but, really is open-ended ones where we were willing to earnestly reconsider ourselves as experimenters in the process. Then when a slime mold, a, a unicellular creature with no central nervous system could traverse a maze more efficiently than most other higher creatures, which it can when we subject it to the maze, it seems like this might be a moment when we it would prompt us to reconsider how we define intelligence rather than relegating the result to a curiosity in a sort of scientific cul-de-sac. And it makes me think of something you said about writing um, your book based on the Kellogg experiment. Quote, the argument I initially wished to make was that because primates are so human-like, They deserve to be treated in a more humane and human-like way. As I was writing the book, my feelings changed. I looked at more studies of animal cognition in different species, 
I asked myself why being human-like was the thing that mattered to me. Why did that mean that an animal deserved to be treated well? And to me, this is one way I think you and Le Guin look to a non-hierarchical, horizontal way of connection um, with the non-human. Le Guin, in her introduction to mazes, which is told from the perspective of a being being experimented on by being placed in various mazes, she says that many readers are confused by this story because the experimenters are referred to as aliens, but because those aliens are from Earth. Um, so these aliens that our narrator's calling aliens are Earthlings. Um, but clearly the narrator is intelligent, sees his or herself as equal to the people or aliens experimenting on him or her, and they're perplexed that the alien doesn't seem particularly curious about them or even to be trying to communicate with them. The experimented upon narrator questions so much of the circumstances of how the experimenter is trying to extract information. So here's, here's a quote from Mazes. I was badly disoriented at first, after the trapping, being handled by a giant, being dropped into a prison, and this place around the prison is disorienting, spatially disquieting, the strange, smooth, curved wall ceiling is of an alien substance, and its lines are meaningless to me. So when I was taken up and put down amidst all this strangeness in a maze, a recognizable, even familiar maze, it was a moment of strength and hope after great distress. It seemed pretty clear that I had been put in the maze as a kind of test or investigation, that a first approach toward communication was being attempted. I tried to cooperate in every way, but it was not possible to believe for very long that the creature's purpose was to achieve communication. It was intelligent, highly intelligent, and it is clear from a thousand evidences. We are both intelligent creatures. We are both maze builders. Surely it would be quite easy to learn to talk together if that were what the alien wanted, but it is not. I do not know what kind of mazes it builds for itself. The ones it made for me were instruments of torture. I guess I was hoping in light of this, you could speak more about the story Us, which feels like it's engaging with similar questions around cross-species reciprocity, even as we desperately try to deny it, deny the reciprocity that that continues to happen the further we deny it. This is a moment perhaps to um, remind everyone that I grew up uh, spending a great deal of time in the rat labs and watching rats run through mazes. So, you know, Ursula's story uh, maps very easily onto the the rat human uh, experiment involving the maze and 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 my story also, um, you know, more uh, more openly deals with with rats in the in the scientific and research setting. Um, I, I think a lot of what is going on is, uh, are the things that we've already been talking about: the lack of reciprocity, the sort of 
lack of respect to the animal intelligence, which the study purports to be looking for and, and finding. Um, uh, and, and my story moves on for me into the kind of horror of the creatures now who are created simply to be uh, subjects in medical experiments or, or other kinds of experiments, the sort of desire to remove any individuality from any particular rat because any sort of personality is going to mess with the data. And, and the more you can eliminate any idiosyncratic sense of a particular personality, the cleaner your data is going to look. You know, I, don't, I don't know if I'm more distressed at the idea of a creature, as in Ursula's story, being trapped from one life and moved into another, or the idea of a creature that is created only for this environment and never has a moment outside the lab or outside the the containers of food and the experiences of the lab, both are, both are deeply distressing to think about. Yeah. Well, there's this wry and harrowing sense of humor in this piece that also reminds me of Le Guin, this piece of yours narrated by a, a lab rat. Like when the rat says, sometimes in these new lands, we found others of our kind this might mean war or sex or both. You understand. And that you understand addressed to the human readership that knocks us down from a place of elevation that, that you continually insist upon in this story or the rat continues to insist upon in this story, even the more it progresses to this, this extremely dystopian present of, of where we are now, it's a, a story that leans into the ways we and rats are similar. We see in your story, for instance, how we bred lab rats to be small and white so that they looked nothing like the rat, large and black, that was a vector for the disease that decimated human populations during the plague. And how in the section called Post Rat, where more and more, more, and more we're adding ourselves. We're inserting and growing our own genetic material within rat bodies. You say, you keep us in quarantine now, isolated from most human contact, because the more of your DNA we carry, the more fragile we are. Your filthy presence threatens us with fatal infections. We hope you see the irony. Again, implicating and indicting us, um, I was hoping we could take this beginning discussion about science experiments again into this question of what, of what Ursula raised in the speech of subjectivity and subjectifying the universe. Um, so I was hoping maybe you would read the section Berkeley rats, which is based on a real phenomenon. Um, but also it seems almost fantastical though. It is a, it's something that's, um, spoken about a lot or has been spoken about a lot it has i will say that um the fabulous writer ted chang has real questions about this he he read the story in a workshop and um just uh raised 
raised suspicions about <laughs> what I was talking about. Okay. That's interesting. <clears throat> All right. So this is, this is from a section called Berkeley Rats. It surprises us that among your many sporting events, you don't include the mazes. You seem to be such enthusiasts. Our own feelings are mixed. For years, there was evidence, unscientific and anecdotal, of two schools and two schools of thought. At Yale, you said the rats had no interest in the mazes. They responded only to food cues, did no spontaneous exploration, never learned the paths. They had to be kept hungry to work at all. You considered them rather dim. Their behaviors easily explained with the simple stimulus response model you already favored. In contrast, we Berkeley rats could be fed a fine meal first and still wander the maze with interest. We explored our surroundings in logical ways, all the right-hand passages first, for example, or always moving downwards. Later, we could be set back inside at any random point and still find our way easily. You began to talk about our cognitive maps, the scientific ways in which we worked, as if we were testing out hypotheses. Vicarious trial and error, VTE, is what you call the hesitant looking about behaviors we evidence before moments of decision. You wrote papers about our remarkable VTEs. And then you made us better, made it the best with the best, shipping us out to labs all over the world. We were the rats everyone wanted. We prided ourselves on our performance, our abilities, our discipline. Now, recent studies suggest that the single factor most predictive of our success is you. Tell a student he has a Berkeley rat and whoever he has will try to perform accordingly. While you were noting our VTEs, we were noting yours. Our desire to please you has wreaked havoc with your data, which displeases you. You prefer data to animals. This is a maze with only one way through. So in the story, um, putting aside Ted Chang's uh, reservations, you say it is the rat's desire to please us that wrecks havoc on our data. Uh, which is the which in in the conversation around this um, is is often what's concluded, but I wonder if it's even harder to dis disentangle disentangle than that because it is the lab technicians' belief that they have a Berkeley rat even when they don't that leads the rat and the lab technicians' interpretation of the rat to be Berkeley like. So it's it's sort of it, again like a collaborative. Um, hard to pinpoint um yes this is the one of the other meanings i had in mind to the title we are all completely beside ourselves which you know uh the, the first meaning is is just that we are part of this world and that everything around us is also part of this world and and so there is no separation between us and and, and the world but the other is that the way we experience the world is limited to uh, our own senses and our own um, preconceptions uh, and our own desires uh, and fears. And, and therefore, um, everything we see comes, everything we deal with comes through that filter and becomes part of us in that process so that it is 
very, very hard for us. It has been very, very hard for us to recognize as intelligence anything that doesn't look like human intelligence. Do you want to say anything about what Tad Chang's position is? Just that he found it um, unscientific, the, as, as, the, as the section says, yeah. anecdotal and unscientific, and yeah. therefore he, he had doubts about its validity. Well, it is very provocative, I think, when, when, and interesting when Ursula says she wants to subjectify the universe. Uh, and I want to, I'm going to play a little exchange that I had with her where I asked her about it. And then, okay, I, I would like to just say one more thing before you do that, which is, um, you know, very much in this, in this area that we've been talking about, which is that it looks to me as if the terror of anthropomorphizing other animals has really prevented us from seeing our commonality with other animals and that this thing that was set out as a sort of careful scientific decision um, has within it, you, you know, it, it, it is as prejudicial as any sort of anthropomorph anthropomorphizing would be. Yeah. And, and it's puzzling to me that that fact was not recognized. That, that if, if you make a decision one way or the other, there are implications both ways. It's not like one decision is a clean one and the other is not. Uh, yeah, I, I both agree. And, and you're on the same wavelength, unsurprisingly, with Le Guin, who's going to echo some of what you just said. Can you talk more about wanting to subjectify the universe? I know normally when people think of subjectification, they think of something interior, maybe even self-referential, but here you're seeing it as a path towards reaching out. Yeah, um, there was an article by Franz Duval uh, this week in the New York Times about tickling uh, bonobo apes and getting the complete human, as it were, we think, response of giggling and yeah. drawing away but wanting more, you know, and so on. Marvelous, subtle article about relationship and how many scientists want to objectify our relationship with animals. And so we cannot say that, you know, that the little ape is, is acting just the way a little human would. That's, no, it's, it's, it's responding only in ape fashion. We mustn't use human words. We mustn't anthropomorphize. And as Duvall points out, there's this kind of terror of fellowship, in other words. We, we can't, we're not to have fellow feeling with an ape or a mouse. Well, I, I know Duvall is someone you know a lot about. Um, uh, well, I read a lot of, uh, of his work when I was writing my book. Yes, I think he's quite wonderful. Yeah. And for the longest time his now successful attempts at demonstrating that there's empathy in primates where an individual will give up short-term gain in solidarity with the collective, for instance. Um, these, these attempts were dis dismissed as, as anthropomorphic and, and romantic. Um, the scientists who, who wanted to dismiss his investigations outright 
I don't know if they realized that the criticism was coming from a species defensiveness about what makes us human, especially given how we have no trouble beginning from the place that all animals are competitive and every action is a means to pass on genes as if that were a neutral place to begin, which, I mean, to me on the surface just seems absurd that that would be considered a, a default position um, and speaks to a lot of human bias um, and human desires about our own self-regard. But Duvall points to how we are equal, equally related to chimps and bonobos, so the, the, the bonobo that Le Guin just mentioned. But unlike chimps, um, bonobos have matriarchal social structures. They're less competitive and possessive. They're hypersexual, almost indiscriminately so. Um, and yet we always look to the chimp to explore the ways we're different than primates. Um, but I wanted to take this terror of fellow feeling further into narrative and story, uh, both the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, but also the ways you and Le Guin use story against erasure. While preparing for this conversation, I was reading the New York Times book review, it's kind of uncannily similar to the way Le Guin was when we were having that conversation I just played. And a couple of weeks ago, there was a book review written by Duvall. Uh, he was reviewing a book called Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking. And in it, he writes, quote, We celebrate logic and reasoning and disparage the emotions, which we find too close to our bodies. Those flawed vessels of flesh and blood that carry us around and bother us with irresistible needs and urges. The flesh is weak, we say. Throughout history, great male thinkers have argued that while animals and women run after their emotions and impulses, the human mind is at its noblest when it transcends these. They proudly declared, quote-unquote, man the only rational being on the planet. And he clearly means here man in both its meanings, as a species and as a gender, and it feels to me that these critiques he, about recognizing the way we very genuinely might have fellow feeling with another species, these critiques as romantic or emotional or as subjective, and that by default science should preclude them, seems to be a gendered critique. To feminize this sort of data and then dismiss what it calls as feminine. And yet on the other hand, Many of the greatest primatologists were women, and many of today's great scientific breakthroughs on our knowledge about trees and tree communication, much of that is also coming from women. And in both cases, uh, it's coming often from field study, from observation in the field rather than from a maze, which makes me think of Duvall, that Duvall is onto something about both the dismissal of the body, the animal, and the emotional, and also the possibility of us learning something different and vital when we acknowledge that all of those things are also in the room. Even in the quote-unquote controlled environment, they're in the room. Um, 
it's not entirely a question, but I guess if we return to this notion of subjectifying the universe, um, and we think about Duvall around the emotions and man as human and man as man, um, do you think there's something about these breakthroughs around what we've learned, say, about primate cognition or about tree communication happening, not always, of course, but prominently by women in less controlled, more multifactorial environments where they're clearly, I mean, they're not part of the the experiment, but they are part, they are there as part of the material and the data being produced. So in a sense, the knowledge that's coming is coming through an irreducible, multi-directional uh, uh, being together. I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of thoughts around around these issues, um, uh, some of which may not be as as directly responsive as I would wish, but but they are the thoughts that occur to me. Um, first of all, that. It, um, some of the early primate studies, uh, which were conducted by men, in retrospect, um, clearly uh, were interested only in the behavior of the male uh, of the male primates. That you know what they saw, what they thought was important, and what was going on were the things being done by the males, and that. Um, they, they often couldn't even distinguish one female from another, even though they'd been observing a fairly small group for some time, that they knew, they knew the males, but they did not know the females and they did not pay attention to what the females were doing. Um, another thing that occurs to me is in uh, uh, very much along the lines of the reciprocity that we've been talking about is that in in the field, the primates frequently responded differently to female scientists and to male scientists, and that the female scientists were um, less threatening in some way to them, and therefore they were they became more comfortable around the female scientists. And I've probably reduced that. Um, egregiously to uh, maybe say something that I didn't mean to say. But so what I do mean to say is that it appears that once again, who the scientist is has an impact on the data that will be received. And that um, some of that comes from the limitations of the observer, but some of that comes from the reciprocity of the, of the fellow creatures being looked at. It's um, it's always it's been puzzling to me how much fellow feeling with other animals has managed to be something that is seen as emotional, female um, or childish. That uh, you know, as I said, it's something that we're expected to put aside as we grow in order to arrive somewhere more rational. Um, there's a historical event that I've read a great deal about uh, called the Brown Dog Riots. And they were in Battersea, 
they involved uh, uh, medical school experiments where dogs were being vivisected as uh, publicly, you know, as part of a lecture. Uh, and two women, I think they were from Sweden, managed to sneak into one of the vivisections and they wrote a, a horrifying account of it. Uh, and um, and there was this period, this kind of brief period, where the anti-vivisectionists made common cause with um, the socialists and uh, the, um, the suffragists and uh, and the union movement, you know, it was not uh, it, it was not merely one gender. Uh, it, it was a, a large movement with, uh, you know, on one side, all of these um, progressive sorts of causes, and on the other side, the medical students. And it, you know, it, it there were riots, and it went on for several weeks. It uh, became a, a, a political action sort of, uh, which had many, many implications, but which was uh, focused on the very narrow issue of whether a statue of a dog could be put up um, in a way that acknowledged the suffering of the, of the other animals. And this was all, this was like the 1904, 1905. And, um, and it was kind of swept away in the horror of, of World War I. Uh, but when it came back, the medical students had so completely won the day. That's the part that is puzzling to me, that we went from quite a, a community involved in, at the very least, um, you know, opposing the vivisection of, of animals. And well, it's, it, reminds me of, it reminds me of the exchange that we had on email where we were talking about some issues, and I... I brought up one of my favorite past conversations for Between the Covers, which was with Talia Field, and I asked you if you'd read Experimental Animals, uh, which looks at the rise of vivisection in, in France and ties some of the views towards the animal body and the, and the female human body and rights of animals and the rights of women and also the rise of the experimental novel at that time in France. And not only had you read it, but of course you you'd blurbed it. Um, it's a wonderful book. It's put together almost entirely from, um, you know, from uh, material that was published at the time. Uh, yeah, and it's something that I want to I, I want to talk. We're going to get to eventually in this conversation is around um, erasure in the archive because I mean, really, she's also trying to um, conjure erased voices of women. Um, but before we get there, when you, when you mentioned how lots of these scientific responses to the subjective or the emotional um, are called romantic or, um, or feminine and then dismissed or childish, you, you've talked about how at some point when you when you were a five-year-old wandering around your dad's lab, you ended up in the the area where the rhesus monkeys were kept. And what I rem if I remember this right, this is from memory now. Um, you could immediately feel their anger and despair, um, the way they'd been 
um, harmed, not just physically, but psychologically. Um, and this nonverbal transmission of information between you and the rhesus monkeys, this what I would call fellow feeling, I think would typically be dismissed because you're a child and maybe more so because you were a girl. Um, but it's still, I mean, I just I come back to the same thing that I've already said, but it's still wild to me that the onus, that the onus isn't on the scientist to prove Descartes' assertion that if you kick a dog and it howls, it isn't different than moving a door and having the door creak. That the onus isn't on science to prove that assertion. That's where we start. That instead, Duvall and Goodall and Fossey have to prove the opposite. That the onus is on them to prove they aren't being sen sentimental rather than on the, Car the contemporary Cartesian perspective that that isn't monstrous, but I know it's amazing, isn't it? Because, um, because there's Darwin and, you know, it, it seems to me the obvious implication of Darwin's work is that, you know, there's been this connection as, as creatures evolve and change and mutate that we all started in the same place. And therefore it seems much more logical to assume the kinship than to assume the lack of the kinship. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely on the same page. Um, <laughs> so, so when, when Joe Walton came on between the covers to talk about her book, my real children, which has two parallel alternate narratives for 20th century feminism and which won the award you co-founded the James Tiptree junior award she was she talked to me about canonization and the erasure of women and she put forth as an example cj cherry and william gibson in the 1980s who by her account seemed equally successful then both regularly having their novels nominated for and or winning the hugo award throughout that decade and i went back and looked and cj cherry was winning and getting nominated even more than william gibson at the time but close um but flash forward 20 years and Gibson is canonized and many people don't even know who C.J. Cherry is. And I brought this up with Ursula, something she cares deeply about. Um, she cared deeply about. She was concerned about Grace Paley and whether she would quietly disappear. She has essays about erasure, for example, the essay Disappearing Grandmothers about Wallace Stegner's failure to give proper credit to Mary Foote, whose life story and book he used to create the angle of repose. But I also know out in the world, Ursula took particular interest in helping debut authors who were women. And in one of your eulogies for Le Guin, you begin with a quote of hers that goes, to keep women's words, women's works alive and powerful that's what I see as our job as writers and readers for the next 15 years and the next 50. And you add, she looked backwards as well as forwards. She worried about the way women's voices seemed to disappear. Because of feminist scholarship, she wrote in 1986, we will, for the first time ever, have kept the perceptions, ideas, and judgments of women alive as an active creative force for more than one generation. And I sense this desire to fight against 
erasure and also to create an archive of women's work in your writing as well. And perhaps the most striking examples of this for you are around the science of women. For instance, your lightly fictionalized story called The Science of Herself about Mary Anning, who helped create paleontology, who was sought out by some of the most esteemed scientists of the day in her time, but is almost never given credit for her work. And that story contains an epigraph by Jane Austen, who would have been in the same town at the same time as Mary Anning at different points. That epigraph goes, none but a woman can teach the science of herself. But I was hoping we could talk about another of your stories, your Nebula award-winning story, What I Didn't See, which engages with not only sexism in science, but racism and colonialism and species supremacy. But also because the inspiration of the story you wrote comes from an essay by Donna Haraway about a real-world expedition in the 1920s carried out by the New York National Museum of History and perhaps was even inspired by James Tiptree Jr.'s mother who also went on guerrilla hunting expeditions around the same time. Um, Could you talk about this story, its inspirations, and also what its aspirations as well as its inspirations? It has a number of um, sort of trigger points. One of them was, as you said, this essay by Donna Haraway, where she she talks about an expedition, uh, a, a safari in Africa, which was funded and organized um, by the Natural History Museum. And it just was, uh, according to Haraway, a very peculiar kind of logic that um, the, the expedition was going to um, kill and bring back the bodies of uh, some mountain gorillas in order to, to present them in the museum. But, um, but they believed that although, you know, although they were, the project was to kill a couple of individuals, that the larger goal was to save the mountain gorillas from further expeditions of this sort. And the way they were going to do this was to have the gorillas killed by women. They brought women along on the safari so they could be the ones to pull the trigger. And that this, it was hoped, would dispel any sort of idea that it took great courage or, you know, that there was something, um, something to be admired and emulated in the hunting and killing of gorillas. If any mere woman could do it, they hoped, then men would cease to find it worth, worth doing. Um, a very, very peculiar logic, but you know, uh, very striking. And and, and yes, then uh, a, a, another source was um, the book by James Tiptree Jr.'s mother about being on safari and uh, and, and even having little blonde Alice, who was uh, Tiptree's real name. Um, along with her as, as a little girl. And then the third um, bit of source material is Tiptree's own story, The Women Men Can't See. It seemed to me that, you know, in, in that story, um, there are, there, it's, if you think of it as a Venn diagram, there's the quadrant that is the women men can't see. 
And then there is the quadrant that is the men, women can see. And the two bits of the Venn diagram that the story does not address are the men, women can't see and the women, men can see. And mm. so those are the ones that I added when I wrote the story. And also just this intersection between gender and race and, and uh, colonialism, I think, at the same time. Like there's this myth hovering over the expedition in your story that gorillas come and steal women from the villages. And the expedition is told, quote, you should leave your women at the mission when you go gorilla hunting because native women are subjected to degradations far worse than death. So on the one hand, women as fragile and vulnerable people need to be protected from that, which will be studied or, or hunted. But on the other hand, they want a woman, as you say, to kill a gorilla as a means to deter future gorilla hunters because after a woman does it, it will, quote, seem as exciting as shooting a cow. No man will cross the continent merely to do something a pair of girls has already done. I know we didn't we didn't plan on thinking of it, but just listening to you makes me think of Ursula's story, Sir, about the women who, um, is it Everest that they climb? Which mountain do they climb? I can't remember. But in the end, the story ends with this expedition having successfully climbed, it's all female expedition, yeah. successfully climbing a mountain. And then they come back and they all agree that they won't tell the men because the men would be so dispirited by the, <laughs> well, in this story, by the achievement. Yeah, and in this story, our women narrator doesn't experience the horror that ensues. She says, because I'm a woman, I wasn't there for the parts you, you want most to hear. The waiting and the not knowing were, in my view of things, as hard or harder than the searching. But you don't make stories out of that. Something happened to Beverly, but I can't tell you what. Something happened on the mountain after I left. Something that brought Eddie back to me, so altered in spirit, I felt I hardly knew him. But I wasn't there to see what it was. But what she knows about Eddie is that he can't recover from what happened between them and the gorillas. Because in his words, it felt like murder. It, it Just exactly like murder. Um... So really, it's he's not recovering from a moment of, of fellow feeling um, or recognizing that what he did came from a denial of fellow feeling. Um, I like that you give this psychic break and traumatizing epiphany to a man in the story. Um, but I also think of you quoting Adrian Rich in your essay, The Motherhood Statement, which goes... We need to imagine a world in which every woman is the presiding genius of her own body. In such a world, sexuality, politics, intelligence, power, motherhood, work, community, intimacy will develop new meanings. Thinking itself will be transformed. This is where we have to begin. Th thinking about that and thinking how that whole expedition would have gone differently if our narrator had not only been included on the expedition, but that our inclusion might have changed not only what happened, but what was learned from what happened. Um, I wondered if any, any, if more thoughts came up for you around it. 
I do think uh, that uh, that there is a you know that there is a species hierarchy in Eddie, who I do think of as the hero of the story. That he makes a decision to sacrifice the gorillas because the alternative is that the um, men that they have hired to take them into the into the jungle will be um, will be turned on instead. Yeah. Um, and that, um, you know, as much as I myself believe in this fellow feeling and, and want a world structured around this fellow feeling, I, I approve of that decision. I, I, I don't question that decision. So, you know, in some ways maybe the story was um, me trying to discover where exactly the limits of my own philosophies are for me. That's interesting. I'm also thinking of like um, reading David Quammen about the Ebola virus and the outbreaks. Like you learn in that book that how many lowland gorillas died from Ebola. Um, we never hear, I mean, thinking of fellow feeling, even just, reporting that like no one talks about that um yeah i'm learning it here from you for the first time i mean some some of the ebola outbreaks were there was a shortage of meat and some villager would bring back it uh a corpse among many corpses of gorillas to the village but the fact i mean just the uh the la it goes below the radar of our our concern Obviously. Yeah, what we think is important. Yeah. yeah, but also I love this idea that um, when our narrator says, the waiting and not knowing were, in my view of things, as hard or harder than the searching, but you don't make stories out of that. And you call Eddie the hero, of course, but it, it makes me think of Ursula and the carrier bag theory of fiction. Yes. I mean, because essentially our narrator is insisting that what she went through, even in being excluded from the quote-unquote real story, is as important, um, but that's not what stories are made of. And and, uh, and and yet you're making this. You're making the story much like Le Guin tries to make uh, the story out of the thing that isn't the story. I have always been astonished to think of an experience that so many uh, women and men have had that that I was so lucky not to have, which was to see one of my children go off to war, most probably my son, to, you know, to sit at home and see my son go off to war and have no idea whether he was dead or alive at any given moment of the day. I, it's astonishing to me to think that anyone can do that, this thing that so many people have done. Um, yeah. Maybe it's easier for me to um, to imagine what it's like to sit and wait than it is for me to imagine actually being at war. Um, both obviously have their own particular horrors, but just having something to do in many ways seems easier to me than having nothing to do in a in a situation that is so tense and so fraught and that can go on. Years and years. This um, circles me back to something I meant to say. Uh, 
when back when we were talking about Fritz Duval, which is that um, you know that that he talks a lot about the the natural empathy that other species have, um, but he also talks about the natural antipathy that the primates at least have towards anything that is not like us. You know, any anything we can put in the category of other. We don't simply have a neutral feeling towards it, that it's natural. It's part of our natural primate makeup to have an, a, an antipathy mm. towards it. And, you know, we just see the damage of that on a daily, hourly basis as it plays out in our world in all sorts of tribal ways and ways of uh, war and conflict and racism and you probably know more than this about this than me, but I don't want to suggest that bonobos don't have that antipathy, but it is interesting, this idea that we're equally related to two different modes of being. And one of the modes of being seems to have less of that antipathy than the other. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Which um, makes me suspect that we're actually closer to one <laughs> than the other. Well, right now, for sure. Um one of the things you mentioned in one of your eulogies and, and also in one of the prefaces for one of Le Guin's books is the idea that, quote-unquote, realism centers the human and fantasy gives equal importance to the non-human. And you add, quote, in this and so many other ways, fantasy is the more subversive, the more comprehensive, the more intriguing literature and I want to spend the rest of our time with fantasy and fairy tale, even as um, even as far back as the opening pages of the first book of Earthsea. The human is dwarfed by landscape, a, a peak, a storm-wracked sea, and the opening first pages are busy with goats and falcons and trees as much as any human. And much like that lock of eyes between you and the rhesus monkey, or Le Guin and the rattlesnake, there is danger and fear for sure, but there's also companionship and, and porous boundaries and shared space. Um, it doesn't surprise me that both you and Le Guin cite T.H. White, uh, Once and Future King, as important books, where um, Merlin, as, as a means to train Arthur, as a means to guide Arthur towards his own destiny will turn him into many non-human creatures and becoming and experiencing those creatures is, is formative. Um, or that in your essay, King Rat, when you, when you're lost as a child in, in the maze of your father's laboratory and you come across a Norwegian psychologist who gives you a book called castles and dragons, a collection of fairy tales from many lands which turned out to be a pivotal moment for you in your reading life and imagination. Um, but before we talk about fantasy and fairy tale, I want to preface it by playing a final recording of, of Ursula on the show, partially because here we talk about fantasy and the decentering of the human and also about T.H. White. Um, and this part of the conversation happens right after we talk about the prejudice against talking animal stories in so-called literary fiction. 
where she reads a section of her speech called The Beast in the Book. Um, but I also want to play it for another reason. This, this is the third time we spoke. It's the first two times we spoke were at the radio station, but this one happened in her house in the upstairs reading room. And, and by, this, by this time, we were more familiar with each other, um, how we are together in conversation. And it certainly is the most warm and, and loose of the conversations, and I think unsurprisingly is the most listened to, not only of the ones that we had, but of any episode on the show. Um, but I remember when I was at the memorial for Ursula uh, in Portland, and the first speaker was Molly Gloss, and she was recounting the experiences of being Ursula's student in her writing workshop in the 1980s. And she was sharing these really funny anecdotes, including the way Ursula would snort. And uh, I think this is the only exchange, perhaps because of the comfort we had developed at this point, in contrast to our poetry conversation where she admitted in the intro to our book that she was nervous talking about poetry, um, that this conversation, which is warmer and flows more, is one that includes a lot of laughter and even a snort. So I'm going to, this happens right after Pard, her cat has come into the room and, and left. Well, here at your house during this conversation, another author has been coming in and out of the room, your, your cat Pard, who, <laughs> who has a book out himself. Um, so can, can we talk a little bit about Pard's nonfiction? <laughs> well, yes. Okay. Now you see, I shamelessly, and I, I, really, there's a shamelessness to it. I, I pretended that I was Pard and I wrote, I wrote an autobiography. Um, and, you know, I say shameless because obviously what, what I think and feel is immensely different from what Pard really thinks and feels. And I, I just humanized him completely. I hope that's not a, a, what is called colonialism. I hope I'm not just co-opting Pard because I really have a great deal of respect for him. Um, it's a, an attempt to share with others what I do understand or can guess about his feelings. And no more than that. No. The, the, this whole thing about writing about the other Ooh, animals are just the tip of the iceberg. Well, speaking of that, you you bring up a book that was really important to me when I was growing up, the T.H. Uh, White's The Sword and the Stone. Ah. Um, and the, I think part of the reason it was an important book for me was all of those times Merlin was training the future King Arthur by transforming him into different animals. It is absolutely wonderful. It is, it's a, that's one of the the best examples of that. Yeah. Yeah. And and it is that it got changed when it was incorporated into the once and future king. Oh really? The it's the first book of that uh, big book and it's he left out some of the very best stuff that's in the sword in the stone. So you have to you have to get the old book. I the actually think that I read that's probably once what in future had. I think I read Once in Future King. Oh, well, then then you I'll lend <laughs> so you. I, I I'll need lend, to go back. I'll lend you a copy of The Sword and Stone <laughs> because uh, he cut some things and he introduced others. And uh, they, it was most people who know about both books agree that it was a mistake. He got to ranting a bit, you know. Okay. 
Interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, later you say, we human beings have made a world reduced to ourselves and our artifacts, but we aren't made for it, which feels kind of like a tragic horror story of sorts that we've created a world and then a literature about that world that we actually aren't s suited to live in. Well, we're suited to live in it, but, but it's, it's such a small part of the world we could be living in. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It makes it less of a horror story and more of a, just a kind of a existential mistake. Well, and then I wonder, taking that a step further, if maybe one of the biases against science fiction and fantasy is that there's the elevation of the non-human, oh, yeah. whether it's an alien or, or an animal, and then yeah. the decentralization of humanity with regards to intelligence, because intelligence isn't just shared by our species in, yeah. in so many of these stories. Oh, yeah. I think you're, you're right, right on it there. There's, there's real resistance to this. And it's, it, that's kind of part of a lot of the resistance to science, because science simply moves us you know, not just Copernicus, most scientists move us away from the center of things because we aren't, uh, you know. And you, you find out how unimaginably old just the Earth is, and that's nothing compared to the galaxy. And, you know, it's <laughs> you, you get sort of dethroned, you know, and, yeah. and really a lot of people can't bear it. They hate it. It it makes them feel feel alienated, and, and that's the pity of it, because if they could get into it, what you end up with is a much deeper sense of identification with all these marvelous processes that are going on around us all the time that we're part of, all of us. Does that bring up anything for you? I, I love... Uh, her reconfiguration of it as that we are living in a much smaller world than we could be living in. Yeah. That strikes me as profoundly true. I also love how she responds to the importance of fantasy and fantastical literature and connects it to doing the same thing that science does. Science in its best sense, not the science of mazes, but the science that um, includes both the decentering of the human, but also the wonder of being decentered, I think. Yes. And um, I think, you know, it, it uh, echoes again the sort of uh, accusations of childishness that, um, that fantasy has also endured. So much of fantasy is anything but yeah. childish. Well, one of the stories by Le Guin that you picked, The Poacher, uh, it's one that I hadn't read before and loved. It's a fairy tale. It's a wonderful story. It is. And one that directly inspired one of your stories, the, the Piper. It seems like fairy tales in general always have a space in them that is operating on non-human terms, a place that is possibly dangerous but also contains magic. Um, and you could say the poacher has a different sort of maze in it also, uh, not a maze of... Uh, of the lab rat, uh, a maze or a labyrinth, perhaps. Um, but but talk to us about what compels you about this story. Why, among so many of her stories, you 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 push this one to the fore as one of the ones to discuss. There are uh, there are a number of things uh, that this story does that um, move me very much. But you know, one of the really obvious ones is to 
choose a different protagonist and to care about a different process that, um, uh, and again, I think, you know, this is this, I echo this in the Piper, um, probably because it was uh, profoundly moving to me in the poacher, this sort of sense that, uh, that everything is given to the prince, that everything that the prince, that we're, uh, we're expected to admire the prince, but things come very easily to him. The, even the, I guess, depending on which version you read, even the process of getting through the thorns is much more difficult for um, Ursula's protagonist than for the hero of the usual the way the story is usually told, but also that she has this this theory, this conceit that I encountered first in the left hand of darkness, and that is something that I've just thought about a great deal. Uh, and 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 she's addressing it very explicitly in the poacher, which is that there's a sort of center to a narration, there's a, a sort of center to someone's life. In the, uh, in the left hand of darkness, it's the time on the ice that, um, that the narrator says that he returns to uh, as, the, as the center of his life. And um, I, I don't know that I can articulate it as well as I would wish, but just a sense that there's something in your life that uh, part of your life leads up to and part of your life leads away from and that, that you've always gotten a sort of before and after. Mm. Um, and, and in The Poacher, it's the, it's the magical stillness of the kingdom that, um, that, that she was drawn to, um, the, the sort of sense that, that something magical is broken by the end of the story and that the part of the story that matters to her the most is the period before the, the break of the magic, the period where the whole kingdom is asleep. And, and nothing is happening except, uh, she says, birdsong. Well, I feel like ultimately this question of fantasy and fairy tales brings all, a lot together of what we've already talked about with regards to man as species and man as gender. Um, in one conversation, fairy tale writer and scholar Kate Bernheimer says, old fairy tales have female characters that don't fit neatly into any pretty package of girlhood. The girls are clumsy, homely, beautiful, wicked, stubborn, stupid, and kind. There are endless possibilities for boys in the stories as well. Victim, loser, hero, torturer, tailor, husband, good, pretty, and dolt. The characters in fairy tales, by which I mean generally old fairy tales, do things because they have to do them in order to survive, or they do them for no real reason at all. I like the unfastened nature of the whole venture of becoming in fairy tales. These are not princess gets married stories, despite popular abuses of the old stories as such. The writers of fairy tales historically have open arms to all kinds of weird humans. 
Reading and writing from fairy tales helps me think about the problems we've created by putting girls and boys inside boxes. And I suspect there's probably a lot of listeners who, given the types of fairy tales that we're exposed to today, who might be like surprised to hear that gendered um, analysis of fairy tales, given what we typically see. And I came across an essay by Anne Terrio called Fairy Tales Are Women's Tales, which points out that in each new iteration of the Grimm tales, more would be removed or reshaped. She says, not only did they remove any mention of sex, the majority of it both consensual and premarital, but all sorts of other details defining and limiting the female characters were added in. With each successive edition, the Wilhelm Grimm added in more and more adjectives describing what they thought was the perfect Christian woman. Female characters were suddenly dutiful, tender-hearted, God-fearing, and contrite, where once they had simply been beautiful or young. I, I wanted to hold this notion of these stories at their heart having something more feral and wild and less comfortably on human terms as I bring up my favorite discovery in preparing for today. So your suggestion of, of reading The Poacher was a discovery in and of itself for me. But I also came across her essay about The Poacher called The Wilderness Within, um, which Le Guin wrote for an anthology put together by Kate Bernheimer, um, an anthology of women exploring their favorite fairy tales. In, in this essay, we learned that the idea for her retelling of the sleeping of Sleeping Beauty in the Poacher comes from a line of a Sylvia Townsend Warner poem. And the postscript is this wonderful retelling of her pilgrimage in Europe uh, to meet Warner in the 1970s, but also expresses an anxiety about whether Warner is known and read anymore, her stories, her poetry, and her published journal, which she was worried was largely being forgotten, especially in the United States. So again, this brings us back to erasure and archive building, both the erasure of the fairy tale itself and what Le Guin seems to be doing by writing an homage to Warner's work, but also citing Warner and then uh, storifying it by talking about visiting her. I, I say all of this because I'm, I'm, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read one last piece that captures something about gender and nature and story all in one passage. Um, and here, she, this is from The Wilderness Within, and, and she's talking about the anxiety of influence, which she largely sees as a, a male anxiety. Um, Le Guin says, quote, that the accepted male notion of literary influence is appallingly simplistic is shown first, not last, but first, by the fact that it overlooks, ignores, disdains the effect of quote-unquote pre-literature, oral stories, folk tales, fairy tales, picture books, on the tender mind of the pre-writer. Such deep imprints are, of course, harder to trace than the effect of reading a novel or a poem in one's teens or twenties. The person affected 
may not be conscious of such early influences, overlaid and obscured by everything learned since. A tale we heard at four years old may have a deep and abiding effect on our mind and spirit, but we aren't likely to be clearly aware of it as adults unless asked to think about it seriously. And the person affected may be deeply unwilling to achieve consciousness of such influences if quote-unquote seriousness is limited to discourse of canonical literature, we may well be embarrassed to mention something that some female relative read aloud to us after we'd got into bed in our jammies with our stuffed animals. Yet it may have formed our imagination more decisively than anything we ever read. I, I just love that. And I feel like it echoes I back. Do up. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any thoughts about it? about this notion of pre-literature and the pre-writer and the shame we might have of, of, of honoring <laughs> what we heard when we were in our jammies? I was read to a lot when I was little, both my father and my mother. And, um, and I can still, there are like, if I read Winnie the Pooh, it's in my father's voice. I hear my father reading it as I'm reading on the page. Um, my mother read me Charlotte's Web, and uh, I read Charlotte's Web to my daughter, and my daughter read Charlotte's Web to her children. And not a woman in our family has gotten through that book without desperate sobbing around the time of Charlotte's death. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, that a, a, again, this is something I think that um, because I've because I've been asked because I've been asked to talk particularly about we're all completely beside ourselves, I now trace a pretty straight line from Charlotte's Web and and watching my mother weep um, to writing we're all completely beside ourselves. But just as Ursula says, I think without that interrogation, um, I would not have noticed the the ways in which they are... uh, that the two books echo each other. I think that I was profoundly influenced by that book and in one very specific way too, that I had never at that point uh, read a book where anybody died, Mm. Uh, at least, you know, not a main character. So that it was a shock to me to realize that that might happen in a book. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, you mentioned earlier the, um, Castles of Dragons, the book that Bidcom Crane gave me. Um, and um, uh, one of the reasons I really loved that book was that up until then, the fairy tales I had read, which were uh, of the Grimm's variety, which I now know were pale imitations of the originals, but um, they were too, they were too much for me. They were horrified. And um, and the books in Castles and Dragons were a bit gentler. And mm. They were had a very happy childhood. And um, this, this sort of sense of ominous, dark uh, forces around me was not something I felt very often. And, uh, I, I was on a panel years ago with a bunch of other female writers. And 
we were talking about the fairy tales that had impacted us the most. And I was astonished to listen to these other women and realize that they found these fairy tales, whichever one they had chosen, empowering and magical and, uh, you know, utterly affirming when um, the fairy tale that had the most impact on me was uh, the Pied Piper. And, you know, it it was horrible. It was just a horrible story in every way, Uh, unbearable. So, um, you know, for, I think for people whose childhoods were maybe more, um, more, threatening, uh, you know, but people who had experiences that I was spared, um, fairy tales gave them a sense of power and a sense of possibility. But for me, they really came with a sense of darkness that, that there were, there were things in the world, people in the world, um, forces in the world that did not wish me well, that I had not really noticed up until then. Yeah. Well, in the spirit of, of pre-literature or of the pre-writer and, and the deep imprints that come from locking eyes with something non-human or hearing something rather than speaking it or writing it, I, I thought we'd end with another Le Guin story that you foregrounded. Uh, she unnames them. And do you, do you have anything you'd like to say about the story just that, that I, you know, that I love it, that I feel that, um, and, and this sort of came up when you were talking to Molly, there's something so um, simple and direct in the way Ursula writes some of her stories that it is, it, it takes a moment to realize how enormous the issues she's bringing up are and how complicated the stories actually are. And this one, I think, uh, will serve as a wonderful capstone to a lot of the things we've been talking about, um, the, whole, the whole conversation, um, but, uh, but um, largely the sort of position of women uh, between animals and men, you know, which category do we belong in? It's a subject that a lot of women writers think about a lot, and uh, it is very, uh, very beautifully addressed in this story. I think. Well, let's go out with a reading of the of the second half of it. And then also say that um, something that that I find in Le Guin, uh, and that I think is quite wonderful, is that when she is dealing with um, with the non-human. Uh, even when she's dealing, uh, as she does in this story, with large categories like the whales or the cats or the parrots, um, that she she always takes time, I think, to give you a sense of individual creatures. That that she never just gives you the the category. That there's always a sense of personalities within the category. That I think is a just in and of itself, a beautiful expression of fellow Yeah, and if we think about it, I mean, this this mystery around language, and Eve here is unnaming what Adam has named, right? So if she's giving us a sense of the creature beyond the category, she's 
it's another way she's unnaming something in this strange yes. way. Yes. Yes. None were left now to unname, and yet how close I felt to them when I saw one of them swim or fly or trot or crawl across my way or over my skin or stalk me in the night or go along beside me for a while in the day. They seemed far closer than when their names had stood between myself and them like a clear barrier, so close that my fear of them and their fear of me had become one same fear. And the attraction that many of us felt the desire to smell one another's smells, feel or rub or caress one another's scales or skin or feathers or fur, taste one another's blood or flesh, keep one another warm. That attraction was now all one with the fear and the hunter could not be told from the hunted nor the eater from the food. This was more or less the effect I had been after. It was somewhat more powerful than I had anticipated but I could not now, in all conscience, make an exception for myself. I resolutely put anxiety away, went to Adam and said, you and your father lent me this, gave it to me actually. It's been really useful, but it doesn't exactly seem to fit very well lately. But thanks very much, it's really been very useful. It is hard to give back a gift without sounding peevish or ungrateful. And I did not want to leave him with that impression of me. He was not paying much attention as it happened and said only, put it down over there, okay? And went on with what he was doing. One of my reasons for doing what I did was that talk was getting us nowhere. But all the same, I felt a little let down. I had been prepared to defend my decision. And I thought that perhaps when he did notice, he might be upset and want to talk. I put some things away and fiddled around a little, but he continued to do what he was doing and to take no notice of anything else. At last I said, well, goodbye, dear. I hope the garden key turns up. He was fitting parts together and said without looking around, okay, fine, dear. When's dinner? I'm not sure, I said. I'm going now with the, I hesitated and finally said, with them, you know, and went on. In fact, I had only just then realized how hard it would have been to explain myself. I could not now chatter away as I used to do, taking it all for granted. My words now must be as slow, as new, as single, as tentative as the steps I took going down the path away from the house between the dark branch, tall dancers, motionless against the winter, shining. You know, that it's late to insert this, but one of the things I would like to have said earlier was that with all this sense of fellow feeling, Ursula never does lo lose track of the fact that there is, that, there, it, that it's a dangerous relationship, mm -hmm. that it, you know, they are not necessarily sharing the warm fellow feelings we are trying to have towards them, that they may be feeling something quite else. Well, also, I wonder if fellow feeling for us has to be a warm fellow feeling, but just the acknowledgement of interdependence and reciprocity. I mean, if, if the atmosphere is going to be created by more than just human respiration and livestock respiration, but by other things, those other things that 
that we depend on to be able to breathe the air don't all have to we don't have to be friends to <laughs> to with all of them yeah no that's beautifully put yeah yeah thank you karen for for spending these 2 hours with me today it was so wonderful to to both create this together over email and then and then actually be together I have really enjoyed it. It's been lovely to talk to you. Uh, I look forward to everything that is coming in the series. I know, me too. We've been talking today to Karen Joy Fowler. You've been listening to Crafting with Ursula. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Karen Joy Fowler's work can be found at karenjoyfowler.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider becoming a listener supporter. Learn about the potential gifts and rewards of doing so at patreon.com slash between the covers. These include everything from rare collectibles from Ursula K. Le Guin herself to bonus audio beyond the main conversations with everyone from Ted Chang to N.K. Jemison to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. Again, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank Arwen Curry for the audio of Ursula from the documentary Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin. William Anthony for the photograph of Ursula used in the banner. Tin House's Jacob Valla for the graphic design, Becky Kramer for publicity, and Theo Downs Le Guin for being a bottomless well of ideas, insights, and encouragement. Finally, the music you hear, called River Song, and the music in the introduction, Heron Song, come from the collaborative album by Todd Barton and Ursula Le Guin, called Music and Poetry of the Cache. Thanks to Todd Barton for granting permission for its use. See you next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula.